I'm Danielle Johnson, and this is Turn and Talk, the podcast where teachers talk about teacher stuff. I'm here today with Amanda Voissard. Amanda, introduce yourself. Hi, Danielle. I am a teacher at Barbara Bush Middle School. I teach seventh grade math. I've been here for six years. This is my fifth year teaching seventh grade. The other year I taught sixth grade. My current group of kids, I moved up with them. I taught them in sixth grade and now we've moved up to seventh grade. So that's where I'm at. Amanda, math is done a little bit differently at your campus. Can you explain that for me? Absolutely. A couple years ago, our principal decided that our entire campus was going to be detracked. And so we would no longer have regular or honors classes. Everyone would be in the same class, regardless of their academic ability. And this is the same for math. And that was challenging at first because math is more of a skill-based class. We were struggling with the idea of teaching all kids in the same classroom when math is typically taught at two different levels. Our principal decided that this is how it was going to be, and we were on board with it, and we've taken that challenge, and this is the second year we've been doing detracking. Can you explain why detracking is important? You could walk into any classroom on our campus, and just by looking at the student population, you could determine which class was regular and which class was honors. And that sounds harsh, but that was reality. It was unfortunate that we were practically segregating our students based on their academic ability. That's what it looked like. It wasn't intentional. That was just what was happening. And that's just not acceptable. We had to do something about it. Placing kids in on-level or honors, does that change things for the future for them? That was one of our biggest concerns with math because Our honors curriculum typically dictates that students are in algebra by eighth grade, and a regular curriculum has students not taking algebra till ninth grade. And when we were first talking about how we were going to do this detract curriculum, we did not want to put our higher achieving kids at a deficit. And so instead of having our curriculum be sixth, seventh, eighth grade algebra, we decided we're gonna push all kids no matter what their ability level is. So our students in sixth grade are taking the sixth grade standardized test. And then in seventh grade, they're taking the eighth grade standardized test in the hopes of so many more students being algebra ready in eighth grade. And being algebra ready in eighth grade puts them on track to take more advanced math classes in high school. Absolutely, it's practically an advanced curriculum for all of our students. All of our students are held to a high level, no matter their ability in math. So we've had to do things a bit differently in class to make sure that all those students can reach that. Having a diverse group of students must be challenging. How do you meet the needs of all learners in your classroom? Classrooms have always been diverse. It's just that this time they're diverse in ability level. And so we've been having to figure out how to meet all these different levels of kids all in the same classroom. So we've been talking a lot about differentiation. It was a campus-wide discussion two years ago, and that's what we've been really working on to make sure that we meet the needs of all of our kids. What does a typical day in math look like for you with all of these different groups in class? You have English learners, you have your typical student, you have students with special ed accommodations, and you have gifted students together. Tell me about just a day in the life. 
Every year since I've been a teacher, I've always started class with a warm-up. I think that's not uncommon for many teachers. It gives us the opportunity you know, to take attendance and such. And I've always started with a warm-up, and it's just felt like for years I've been pulling teeth getting kids to do this warm-up. And in the middle of last year, I started doing two warm-ups on the board, and they could choose which one they wanted to do. And all of a sudden, engagement spiked. Kids wanted to do the warm-up, and not only did they want to do the warm-up, they wanted to try both. It, it was shocking. I was not expecting it at all. I actually did it as a way to start reviewing for the star test. I was like, well, I don't know if I'll have time to hit all these concepts. Let's just put two on the board. And that way I can go over both of them while students are only required to do one. But all of a sudden they started doing both. So it went from doing zero warmups a day to two warmup problems a day. And that has now become a routine practice in my room. So that's one way I differentiate. I think that that helps kids feel safe. They have that option. If they only want to do one, that's all that's required. But a lot of times when they finish that first one, they're okay trying the second one if it's more challenging for them because they already got one right. So that's how class always starts. There's a couple other ways that I can differentiate in class. One of my favorite ways that I've done so is doing what I call leveled questions. I create just one or two questions for these leveled questions, and I create three different levels. The lowest level I call level one, and that is what is required in order to be on grade level. So I'm never lowering the requirements. Level two is one step up, and level three is for my highest achieving students. How do you design these different levels? What's going through your brain as you write these questions? And are they the same questions on each paper? What does this look like? I always start with my level one question, and that's what I write first. And that's what would I ask a normal on-level class of students? What do they need to do to be successful? And so that's where I start. I then figure out one way to make it one step more challenging. It may not be the exact same problem. It may be an entirely different problem over the same concept, but it is more challenging in some capacity. Even if that particular topic is not more challenging. They have to maybe spiral in old information, and that's what makes it more challenging. My level three, I always have one student in my head, and that is my most gifted learner, my most advanced learner, and I know exactly who that is while talking about it. And I write that question for that student, because if I'm trying to challenge every student, that student's not excluded. I have to challenge him as well. And so when I'm writing that level three question, I'm thinking, how can I still challenge him? Because everything he does in class is a breeze. So this is my opportunity to really get him thinking. And so I take it one or two steps more challenging to make sure that he and all the other advanced learners are also challenged. Now, it's a little bit interesting watching you do these leveled questions in class because you've had some of the students cry. Yes. When we do leveled questions, I always remind them what each level represents, and I really build a culture around you are not defined by a leveled paper. I always put level one on green, level two on yellow, and level three on red so that they know it's like a stoplight. Green means go, yellow means caution, red means are you sure you're really ready for this? It's very challenging. And some kids will get the red one, and they can't do it. And that's the first time in their life they've been challenged in math. And it has brought a couple kids to tears because it's always been a breeze for them. But we make it clear that doesn't mean you're a failure. That just means there's opportunities for growth. So classroom culture is huge in doing this. One of the other things I've noticed observing your class during leveled questions 
is students sometimes do more than one. Is that common? Yes. When I first introduce the leveled questions, I tell them, pick the one that you're most comfortable with. But if you finish one in three minutes, you picked too easy of a level. You have to go do another one. Or if you're sitting there and you're sitting there and you're sitting there and you cannot figure it out, then maybe you picked one that's too hard and go back and do um, a simpler one. But oftentimes when students can um, successfully complete one of the levels, they'll go back and try a harder one. I think that goes back to what I do with the warmups. They've already felt accomplished, so they're not afraid to take a risk because if they fail, that's okay. They already did something correct. You do leveled questions for formative assessments. How do you approach summative assessments? We do have district assessments that we can't alter, so we can't really differentiate those. But I have brought in a few leveled tests as well, except I don't tell students what level they're getting. They don't have any idea which one, but I base it on how they've been doing on that unit and then give them an appropriate test for them. I do keep that in mind if a student is severely struggling and I gave them a more challenging level, I will go back and say, hey, try this one instead because I don't want them to fail. They're doing work that's harder than what's required for grade level. But I have brought that into summative tests and kids are proud when they find out, you know, maybe that I gave them a level two or a level three test and that they were successful. I'm sure many people are skeptical of detracking. So tell me about some of the successes that you've been seeing in class. I too was skeptical about detracking in math, but I have seen so many gains from this. Students are in classrooms with other students they've never had class with before, or if we were tracked, they would not be in class with. I've seen one of my most bright students and one of my struggling students partner up and they are such a great team. The struggling student constantly asks the more advanced student for help, and the advanced student is teaching the struggling student. And as teachers, we know that if students can teach it, they really know it. And so they're both benefiting from this interaction, and they've become friends. And I have a strong suspicion that if we had regular and honors classes, they wouldn't even know who each other were. That's not the typical oh, you're my highest student, go be a peer tutor. Absolutely not. They had, they were in a group together and they formed this bond. And now that they're not even sitting in a group together anymore, they will still work together. It's been a great mutualistic relationship. They're both benefiting. Another benefit I've seen is that students who maybe are lower achieving see what their peers are capable of and thus they're aware what they can be capable of. When I was teaching tracked classes and I had an on-level class, sometimes it would be challenging to push them because they can't see an example of some what someone their age can do. And now they do see that example. And so they are more likely to push themselves because if that kid can do it sitting in my class, why can't I do it? What challenges have you faced in this? One challenge that I've had is continuously pushing my GT students. There are days when we're just learning a new concept that they pick it up quicker. And sometimes they're sitting a little more bored because I don't have a backup plan when three-fourths of the class is learning at a slower rate. That's something that I still need to figure out. Another challenge that we have is since all students are being pushed. 
there's going to be a moment where every single student in the classroom hits a wall. It won't be at the same time as their neighbor, but they're all going to reach that zone of proximal development where they're like, hey, I need assistance here. And so it's been trying to navigate that. So I've really been encouraging students to work together on daily tasks because where this kid hits a wall may not be the same place as who they're working with. So they can help each other. And they're essentially being teachers to one another, pushing them past that roadblock. Whereas I can assist those who need more of my help, not a peer's. That seems to go back to math as a sport and as a skill. Having a running buddy makes running a lot easier. Exactly. Ha having a math buddy seems to make math a little bit more fun and probably pushes you a little bit harder than you would yourself. That's exactly right. What about your struggling students, your more reluctant learners, maybe those students that came into seventh grade below seventh grade level? Are you able to differentiate down and scaffold down enough for them that they're able to hang with those GT learners in your class? So that is a challenge as well, particularly students who are not at our school last year, maybe being a little behind in the curriculum because in sixth grade, they learn all sixth grade material and some seventh grade. So coming in as a new seventh grader, they've missed out on some of that. We do have places in our curriculum built to reteach that. We just don't spend as long as we typically would because so many of our students know it. And if a student comes in at the beginning of the year as a seventh grade student, we get them caught up. That's not an issue. Where I'm seeing struggles is students coming in at the spring semester of this year. And we've had some students feeling like they're inadequate or they're not good at math because we are just a year ahead at that point. And so it's been a conversation with them about how just because they're struggling right now does not make them bad. It does not mean they will struggle forever. It is just that the way our curriculum is built, you're doing eighth grade math and you weren't prepared for that and that's okay. We'll figure out a solution. Again, that comes back to classroom culture, that it is okay not to get the right answer every time. And that doesn't mean you're not a math person. That's right. I refer to it as sports a lot. In basketball, you have to practice free throws over and over, and sometimes you'll miss one and that's okay. Same thing in math. Sometimes you'll get a, a question wrong that doesn't make you bad at math. We just have to practice more. And it really is all about the, the classroom culture and that no one is dumb for missing a question and no one is smart for getting a question right. They were just prepared or unprepared and that's just more practice that we have to do. Speaking of practice, do you send homework home for them to practice? This year, I have not given homework. Instead, I've provided home practice because I'm really trying to build that culture of practice, practice, practice. And if you don't need the practice, you've already mastered that skill, then you don't need to do the practice. So I've posted practice on Google Classroom with an answer key for students to do on their own. Wait, with an answer key? With an answer key. I know myself well enough with 130 students, if they turn in a homework assignment, it's not going to get graded in time to have beneficial feedback. So with an answer key, they can see exactly right then and there whether they have the answer correct. And if they're practicing and they cannot figure out how to get the correct answer, then they come into tutorials and that's when we work through it and we can figure out where the errors are. Speaking of guiding kids through problems when they're struggling, I've seen you use video before. Can you tell me how you use video in the math classroom? In our district, if a student does not pass an assessment, they need to do a reteaching opportunity. And in the past, what that's looked like in my room is students coming in and me 
talking at them for 45 minutes reviewing and having to do that multiple days in a row. Instead, I've created Google Forms where I take videos of myself going through the problems on the tests that they took and they can watch me work through those problems. They can watch it as many times as they want. I've only had to say it one time when recording and they can figure out where their error was again. They can go at their own pace. They can replay it. If they don't need to go over a problem, they can skip it. It's been very beneficial with reteaching because I don't have to say the same thing a thousand times, but they can listen to it a thousand times if they want. Detracking, like I said earlier, is a little bit controversial. One fear that I think teachers and administrators have when unleveling and putting all of their students together is parent reaction. A lot of parents really like having that honors or pre-IP label on their kid and feel like their kid is not getting that same rigorous instruction if they're not in honors or pre-IP. How have parents reacted to this new system of math? I think that those parents you're speaking about tend to go to administration. And so I'm not really familiar with those parents. The parents I was more concerned about were those who felt like their kids would not be prepared for an eighth grade test at the end of their seventh grade year. That's what I thought would garner more reaction. But surprisingly, I haven't had any uh, negative reaction, at least, to detracking. At the beginning of the year when we have open house and I talk to parents and let them know that their students will be taking the eighth grade test as a seventh grader, I often get kind of raised eyebrows, not in like a questioning way, but in more of an amazed way, like, oh, that's what my child's going to be required to do. And when I just relate it to a skill, that math is a skill, and we're going to practice, 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 parents are pretty on board. And I let them know as long as your kid's willing to put in the work, they're going to do fine. Like, I'm really wondering if there's any parents that are like, my kid's good at math. <laughs> well, I don't, I don't know about that. I, I mean, like, that would only be at report card pickup, progress report pickup, that when I tell them that their kids are good at math, they're surprised. But I think that could range across a whole spectrum of ability levels. Parents are always surprised to hear that their kids are good at math because all parents feel like they were bad at math. It was just a culture shift, I feel like. When we were all growing up, math was hard. Um, but these days, I don't, I don't think it's that way anymore. Math is fun. It's a puzzle to be solved, not something they have to do. That's definitely a big mindset shift from our generation, really. You're either a math person or not a math person to everybody can be a math person. That's exactly right. Just like everybody could be a runner. Again, back to sports. It's skill-based. You just have to put in the work. This big mindset shift and the culture of math is fun. Math is a puzzle. Everybody can be a math person. How do you reinforce that mindset in your classroom? I just let all my students know that they can do it. And when I hear phrases like, Miss Voiceard, this is hard, or Miss Voiceard, I can't do this, I just let them know you can do hard things. You are capable of doing well, no matter how challenging it is. You can do it. You just have to put forth the effort. If you get stuck, I'm going to be there to help you. Just don't give up. That's a really big shift from when a student says this is hard, most teachers react with, oh, it's not that hard. You, It's easy. You can do it. 
but you say what instead? Right. Instead of telling them that, no, it's not that hard, tell them, no, you can do hard things. You're capable of that. And how does that change their perspective? It seems like most of the time they kind of like sit up and they're like, yeah, I can do hard things. And you're like, yeah, you can. Let's do it. In this discussion about differentiation, it's clear that differentiating in class is beneficial for the students. Is it beneficial for the teacher at all? Absolutely. You have to know where each and every student is at. You have to know your students better. You have to have those relationships with them. You have to have that growth mindset with them. You learn how to push all the kids, no matter what level they're at. And that's something I think teachers want to do. They always want to challenge their kids. They want their kids to be better. So it's absolutely beneficial for teachers. Is it a lot more work on your part? I would say it's not It's not extra work at all. At the beginning, learning how differentiation was going to work in my class required some trial and error. But instead of making a worksheet of six problems for every kid, I split up those six problems into three levels. And so all kids only have to do two. And they're challenged in that way. How does grouping play a part in differentiation? I've done grouping by mixed ability level and likability level. There was one day in particular that I tried something new where I took some of my highest achieving students and gave them an alternate assignment in the hallway while I spent the rest of the time in class reviewing a topic. I decided where those groupings would be by giving it giving them a short survey, just asking, how comfortable are you with this topic? Would you prefer more practice time or do you need a challenge? And based on those results and my discernment, I split them up. And those kids in the hallway had a very difficult task that I did not assist them with, except by strategic questioning. And the rest of the ones on the inside, we got to review those things that they had to know in order to move on. So that would be That would be like ability grouping, and it worked really well. Everyone was kind of where they needed to be in that moment. It was almost tracked curriculum for a day, but also encouraged some of those who were reviewing with me, hey, next time I want to be doing the cool activity in the hallway. And so now they're challenged to want to show me that they're prepared for that. I've also done mixed ability grouping where I've taken um, a high achieving student, a low achieving student, and two middle students and put them in a group. And I put them in that group for six weeks and they had to work together. Throughout those six weeks, they were given challenges that often were not related to the math themselves. They were related to building consensus and delegating tasks. And so they had to truly work as a team. And through those tasks, it helped them better learn the math. In those groups, that's where you had that high-achieving student and that low-achieving student really form that bond? That's exactly right. Yeah. Being stuck together with someone for six weeks, you might as well make the best of it. And that's where they, they became friends. And now they work together, even when they're not sitting together. I love it. The eighth grade standardized test is in two days. It is. Do you feel like your seventh graders are prepared for this eighth grade test? I think they're prepared. I think the biggest obstacle for them will be stamina because we don't have much practice taking a four-hour test. But in terms of the content, they know it. I just hope that they can persevere through all 42 questions. That's, that's my biggest concern. In terms of whether they know it or not, I have no doubt they're prepared. That wraps up this episode of Turn and Talk. You can follow me, Danielle Johnson, at iHeartMissJohnson. And don't forget to follow Turn and Talk 
at turn underscore and underscore talk to stay up to date on all the latest episodes. And remember, education is the most powerful weapon which you can use to change the world. So now it is a few months later, the kids have taken the test. I'm sitting here with Amanda right now. So Amanda, give me an update. How did your kids do on this test? So we had great results from this test. Um, I had 71% of my students pass. Uh, last year we had 54 students going to algebra. In eighth grade this year we have 104. So almost double the number of students will be in algebra this coming year. Uh, so that's all fantastic news. I'm very, I'm very pleased with them. That is 50 more kids that are going to be able to take advanced math in high school, which is incredible. That's right, because if we would have started them in sixth grade, deciding whether they're going to be in honors or on level, those kids would have had no chance. They would have still been in on level. They wouldn't be in algebra in eighth grade. Um, they would have been at a disadvantage. That's amazing. And you have really a melting pot of kids in your room. You have kids with accommodations, multilingual students, GT kids, and what we would consider a typical seventh grader. And for more than 70% of those kids to pass the eighth grade test, I think that shows that any kid can do it. I agree. Is there any other updates you want to give us? Yes, so I got married, so my last name is different. I'm no longer Amanda Voisart, I'm Amanda Gallant. Did that change your Twitter handle? It did. Twitter is mathfun with Mrs. G. So mathfun with M-R-S-G. Yes, because awesome. math is always fun in my class. Yeah, it is. <laughs> Thank you.